0: Welcome to Florida In-Depth with the Tampa Bay Times, produced by the Department of Journalism and Digital Communication
1: at the University of South Florida. Here is your host, Professor Elliot Weiser. Hi, everyone. In this episode, we wrap up our look at the deal to build the new Tampa Bay Rays Stadium. And uh, we have a very special guest with us, someone I've known and admire for quite a while. He covers the Tampa Bay Rays for the Tampa Bay Times and is a widely respected baseball journalist, Mark Topkin. Mark, good to see you again. Good to see you, Elliot. So you've covered the team for a long time. I don't want you to feel old, but you've covered them for a very long time. So how surprised were you when you learned that the deal was going to consummate?
0: I wasn't as surprised as I think I would have been a few weeks earlier. I had talked to Stu Sternberg, the principal owner, occasionally like do a little catch up with him at a a game or something and he was very uh optimistic in fact he used the phrase on the record highly optimistic of getting a deal and that was in early September so that kind of got my radar up and and shared that with my colleagues Colleen Wright among others and we all started kind of like hmm this sounds like this might be closer than we thought and then just as things work got a text message from somebody one day who said hey you might want to check on this I hear they're going to have an announcement in a couple days and We were able to break the story that they were going to announce it on uh, Tuesday the 18th.
1: So you, as you mentioned, you know the team, you know Matt Silverman, you you know Stu. Do you think the Rays are genuinely excited about remaining in St. Pete because Stu was on record for a long time not being excited, or are they just resigned to the fact that this is the only place they can go locally? Both? Both. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that's probably my
0: most honest answer for you and, and asking my opinion as, you know, as you said, a longtime observer of this. And I, I, I do think that's probably the most fair way to put it. I think they made it very clear, as you alluded to, their preference in an ideal world would it be in Tampa. And I, I think for most people, if you study this market, and even if you have a, a rudimentary sense of the dynamics of this market, you would say that probably made sense if it was an A, B, you know either or choice. But that wasn't the choice that was presented to them. They're very smart and very astute business people, the people who own the Rays and run the Rays. And I think for as much as people want to quibble and and have their own theories and conspiracies and all that, if they didn't feel that whatever was on the table, if there even was something on the table in Tampa, was good enough to make it work, then they made the right decision in picking the St. Petersburg option. If they didn't think that could work, why you can't go to Tampa if there's no deal, this Constant narrative that's still out there on social media and letters to the editor and emails, and I'm sure you guys hear it as well is, well, they they screwed up. Why would you do this? This is the definition of insanity, et cetera, et cetera. Why build on the same place that hasn't worked? Well, they didn't have another choice. If they could have built in Tampa, but there was no point person, there was no magic spot of land, there was no business person who was going to shepherd this or lead this. They tried, whether that Ebor deal, whoever you want to blame for the Ebor deal falling apart. Again, they're smart people. If they didn't do it, there was a reason they didn't do it. Now, maybe they weren't going to profit enough. You could say that. But still, if they're not going to make enough money doing it, it's going to fail, right? So they had to go with what worked. I think they were at the point, just given the calendar, they need a place to play. They said this, Matt Silverman has said this many times, is ultimately they need a place to play on April 1st, 2028. And start doing the math on construction in Florida with weather delays and things like that that you're going to have when the summer rains and all that they were running out of time to make a decision. So for a number of reasons, this city council was able and this mayor were able to make a deal with them. We'll probably prefacing here another question, but Mm -hmm. um, they had an opportunity, this deal, if it works, and it's going to take a lot of work, a lot of coordination. The model is the Atlanta situation where the battery is very successful from a standpoint of attracting business. And I know there's some stories and some Articles and been some academic pieces written on that. That from a taxpayer standpoint for Cobb County, it's not a success. But I've been there. I don't know if you've been there.
1: Yes, I have. It's an incredible it success. Is, in fact, we referenced it in the last episode of this podcast talking about that.
0: Yeah, people come. I mean, people show up in mid on weekends early. There was the date we went there a year before last. There was a line. There were hundreds of people in line just a midsummer Saturday to go into the team store to buy Braves merchandise. Plus, the Braves are the landlords, we've heard, or at least partial landlords for that entire complex. So assuming the Rays model this deal, this project is twice the size of the battery. So assuming they have good guidance, which Heinz, we would think, is probably a pretty good company to partner with on this, and they have the right mix of attractions there, this will be the opportunity to offset the fact that they're not going to draw 30000 a game. They're not going to sell it every game. They know that. They are expecting their tenants to jump from... 17 to 30 they'd like to get to the middle of the majors that would be in the mid to low 20s if mm-hmm. they can get there and whatever financial benefit they get from the surrounding development
1: in the historic gas plant district that's how they can make it work so how much of this do we attribute to mayor mayor welch getting the done getting it done having a personal stake in it versus the race just got worn down and just decided we're going to stay here and let's just do it. How much of it is the mayor, how much of it is the race just giving up?
0: I mean, with I don't know that we can assign percentage to it, but I think your your theory is right. It's definitely a combination of those two things. You had a mayor who was probably more motivated to make a deal maybe than some of the past mayors. And, and again, there's so much of this we don't ever know with the back and forth. Well, was with Kreisman and the mayors who preceded him. Certainly, they seem to have a better relationship with Welch. They've known him since he was on the county commission, so he's seen the machinations that they went through with the previous mayors. I think that allowed him to kind of cut to the deal. I think Stu Sternberg referenced that after Welch uh, took office, inaugurated, whatever, called him up and said, we want him back in the game. That had to be a great call for the Rays to get because they hadn't been making progress with St. Pete. They weren't making progress in Tampa. And I think the alternative for anyone who wants to and, and rightfully so say this isn't the right move or this isn't going to be a good deal. The alternative is I think Stu Sternberg would have got to the point where he would have sold the team. And then whoever bought it without any connections to the area, I think would have been much freer and emboldened to say, the heck with this. I don't care, you know, about Tampa St. Pete. I'll move to Nashville. I'll move to Vegas, wherever. Uh, They want to move to Charlotte. I mean, all these cities are going to come up. MLB is going to expand soon. Mm -hmm. Once they get the Rays and Oakland Stadium or relocation settled, they're going to expand. So I do think that's going to speed that process up. But that's where I think this was headed. If Welch didn't make a deal and the Rays didn't make a deal and this lingered unless, you know, this miracle savior, Elliot Weiser Stadium in Tampa was suddenly (laughs) built or something. Uh, I'm not paying that money there for Nanny right there, there. you go. So if, if that didn't happen, then I think you would have seen a situation where Sturmberg put the team up for sale and new owners very well could have threatened to move it. I mean, maybe someone would have emerged from this community that's never surfaced before, never wanted to help, and suddenly would have said they'd buy the team and build the stadium. But the team's going to sell for close to $2 billion. And we know what the cost of the stadium is, is $1.3 billion. So if there's someone in this area who's got $3.5 billion dollars, to throw into sports and they haven't surfaced yet you know that
1: would seem pretty un- unlikely so let's assume the stadium is built let's say they get the financing let's talk about the impact on the team itself in the short term uh will the stadium deal change how the baseball folks operate so in the next couple of years are the rays going to change the way they operate because they know they've got a stadium coming and more revenue
0: Probably not significantly. I mean, maybe where it helps them, and this is getting a little a little into the baseball-y side of things, is okay. you know, if they're talking to a free agent <laughs> mm-hmm. who's, you know, they're going to offer a five-year deal to a player, mm-hmm. you know, they can at least tell that player, hey, we're going to have, you know, you, you're familiar with the Trop, we're going to play here for, you know, well, now it would be four more seasons, but in your fifth year, we're going to be in the stadium, you can buy a house here, we're not. Don't, there's no more threats of moving. There's no more speculation of us leaving. So I do think that would allow them, you know, kind of in that one narrow area. I don't know that they immediately start, like, expanding their payroll. I think that would come after they open the stadium. But if you have the assurance of knowing you're here, if you have the assurance of knowing you're in the community, one of the things, and Brian Alders has been probably the lead on this, is how they feel like, and again, we'll find out, but they feel like there's been, kind of a suppressed market among some corporate leaders in the community, some business leaders, um, you know, fans per se individually, but more so from the group standpoint of people that are like, I don't know if I want to commit. Like, you know, it's fun to go or I like baseball, but they might be leaving soon. You know, I've got, you know, every company's cutting back. I've only got limited amount of dollars to invest. I don't know if I want to be involved. So he has made the point and maybe he just wants to keep speaking it into the atmosphere so people start doing it. But the idea that, OK, now that you know the Rays are staying, you know, invest with them or he's going to them saying, come invest with us. Be part of our growth. We're going to have this exciting new stadium, this exciting new place. I mean, if you own, say you own a sports bar in town that's, you know, not right in downtown, but you do OK and you think, Wow, I want to be part of this. You know, maybe you start working with them now. Increase your sponsorship a little. They increase your visibility. You get a sign somewhere in, at the TROP, and then when this new thing is built, you're one of the, you know, maybe you're the sports bar. I assume there'll be, like, one sports bar, one rock and roll bar, one family restaurant, one high-end restaurant. You know, they'll pick their client mix properly so or tenant mix properly, so maybe that's how you start investing now. So maybe they do have a little bit of an uptick
1: in revenue, but I don't think you'll see a significant difference, specifically from the baseball side, initially. So, Mark, long term, I mean, let's—I mean, the Rays are famous for not spending a lot of money, being smart, uh, making good deals, not having highly paid free agents. Does that change when they move into the new stadium? It, 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 because it—it's almost like your identity could change. Talk about that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I think, first of all, they're definitely saying that, which is the right thing to say. That's kind of in the script of people trying to get new stadium deals approved. We're going to invest this money. It's all going to go back into the on-field product. Every dollar we get in enhanced revenue, we're going to put back into baseball operations. So they're saying the right thing. That's what you're supposed to say. I do think there will be a certain part of that. They have done it, quote-unquote, on a shoestring budget for a number of years now. And you talk to some of their baseball operations people, past, present, whatever, candidly, and they admit, it's getting harder because a lot of the things the Rays did over the last 12, 10 years, you know, maybe even a little further back, were innovative things that they brought to the game. Like him or hate them, you know, some of the platoon lineups, the shifting, the opener, all things like that. Well, now what's happened is between other teams watching, it's a copycat sport, and just uh, attrition, I mean, a brain drain. People from the Rays keep getting hired by other teams. So almost all the other teams now are just as smart as the Rays are close to it and doing a lot of these things. And yet while they're doing so, they have more money. So now it's like all the things that the Rays did that worked when they were these plucky little smart guys who figured stuff out. Now other teams are doing the same things and have the resources to cover up their mistakes, to have better players in these roles. I mean – like right, the Dodgers. Yeah, I mean, exactly right. I mean, here, who would have thought the Rays and Dodgers were bidding for a player, too, a couple of years ago? But but right, so a platoon, when you have two guys that the Rays have two guys who are released, but they're platooning them righty-lefty because they both can play the outfield. But now a team's doing that with guys that are like all-star caliber players. So it's harder for them to compete on this lower budget. So I think it will help them. I think they will commit a certain amount more to it. Now, do, does that put them to $250 million in payroll? No. But you know they've never been over like... It, there's different math on this seventy-eight, eighty-two. It's the same year, and it's how you do the accounting. But they've never been higher than that, so they've never even been to a hundred million. You know, Eric Neander floated at the season-ending media session a couple weeks ago. We might just run this team back. Well, I did some not really. I'm not really good at math, but I did some simple math on that. That'd be like a hundred and twenty million dollar payroll. Find that hard to believe? They're going to jump to one hundred and twenty now. That may have just been. Kind of like him saying, hey, doesn't assume we're trading Glass now and Margot, they're two highest paid players, you know, just so you know, we don't have to. But I do think they've shown, you know, the occasional willingness. We alluded to Freddie Freeman, they tried to get him a couple years ago. The long-term contract with Wander Franco was $182 million commitment. The signing of Zach uh, Eflin this offseason, unexpected, biggest contract they'd given a free agent ever. And the crazy part was that was in 2022, going into the 2023 season, I looked up the previous biggest free agent contract was in their first season in 1998 that they'd given an outside free agent when they gave $35 million to Wilson Alvarez. So There's a name from the past. <laughs> they have really not gone out there. So I do think you'll see them step up in those kind of things.
1: Hey, let's take a quick break, Mark, and uh, we'll be right back with more.
0: Never miss the news that matters. The Tampa Bay Times has the Bay Area's largest newsroom and is your source for reliable reporting. With 14 Pulitzer Prizes recognizing its commitment to the community through high-quality journalism,
1: the Times provides the news you need from the source you can trust. Find local stories, investigative reports, things to do, updates on Florida politics, and more. In print
0: on Wednesdays and Sundays and 24-7 at TampaBay.com.
1: Pursue the truth. If you work in the media, communications, or marketing industry, this message is for you. Take your career to the next level by getting your master's degree from one of the top journalism programs in the Southeast. The journalism department at the University of South Florida, St. Petersburg is offering a master's degree in digital journalism and design. And the best thing about it, you can do the entire program from home. This online curriculum can be completed in as little as one year. The program is professionally accredited and provides students with an informative and practical education taught by well-respected professionals and academics. The cost is reasonable. The experience is invaluable. For more information, please call 727-873-4881. That's 727-873-4881 or go to www.usf. Dot edu slash journalism and now back to Florida in depth with the Tampa Bay Times welcome back our guest is the Rays beat writer for the Tampa Bay Times Mark Topkin uh, Mark I have to talk inside baseball with you because you're here so uh, let's do a little inside baseball uh, the question that everyone wants answered is why can't the Rays win in the postseason <laughs>
0: Well, I think if we both knew the answer right now, uh, Neander or or Cash or Sternberg would want us to come over and tell them. So I think they're puzzled as well. We're available, by the way. I think they're, yeah, and we're cheap. (laughs) We are cheap. We could form a consulting firm pretty quickly there, Elliot. Um, Look, I I think they're baffled. I think they were as stunned as anyone. That locker room, Clubhouse, after the game, game two, when they got beat by the Rangers, and eliminated. I don't know that I'd ever been in a room where people were more stunned at the result. I mean, they've had tough losses, they've had seasons end, you know, dramatically, frustratingly, terribly, but I don't think there was, even like the most negative person in that room wouldn't have thought they were going to be out into, they were out in 27 hours, from the first pitch of game one to the last pitch of game two, their entire postseason lasted 27 hours. Uh, It it just – did it happen? I mean, you, right? you're your eye. Would it have like been, be- and would out, it have been right, better yeah. to not happen? Yeah. Would you be better off to miss it than to come play? I mean, I guess the fact that they at least played at home, even though they didn't draw big crowds, as we know, uh, if it happened on the road, you really could have blinked and said it never happened. So I think it's a mystery. I do think what you're seeing as this season, this postseason, has played out, and John Romano, our astute columnist, pointed this out uh, recently. The teams that are winning – now, some are out with the big-name players, but the teams that are winning have the big-name players – the Rangers and the Phillies are certainly two good examples of that. The Astros have some big-name players. The Diamondbacks, not as much, so maybe they're the outlier of the Final Four. But, you know, you're seeing Kyle Schwarber, you're seeing Bryce Harper, you're seeing Trey Turner, you're seeing the guys, you know, using the Phillies as an example mm-hmm. that are making the big money. So if you needed to come up with a theory, if you said we weren't going to leave this room till we came up with a theory, I think my answer would probably be that the players, the Rays win during the season with depth, they pride themselves in a way of saying they don't have the best players on their roster one through 10, but they have the best players on their roster like 11 through 25 than other teams do. That's where they beat them. They beat them with that and they beat them with the 26 through 40, the guys that come up during the season too. So I think what you're seeing though is in the postseason where the level of competition is heightened, the pitching is better, the hitting is better, the defense is better in theory. Those guys that are good enough to get you through the regular season that win those Tuesday night games, that win those Sunday morning games for you or Sunday afternoon games for you, aren't good enough necessarily when they're matched up against the other really good players in the league to win when the competition is heightened. I mean, you're not using the back end of your bull—you're not using the back end, the 7th, 8th, ninth reliever, in a series postseason when you have days off every other day or every two days, you play two, have one off. So that's where I think the depth advantage the Rays have during the regular season— doesn't serve them as well, and the lack of quote unquote star power. You know, look in 2020, Randy Rosarena was a star, right? Mm-hmm. He was incredible. He was the best player of any team had in the postseason, and they got to the World Series. You didn't have that last year. You didn't have that this year in that short sample. Nobody really got hot for the Rays in those couple games, and you saw that this year as well.
1: So, do you think in uh, for next year, do the Rays in the offseason go after a big name player, get a star player? No. <laughs> okay, I knew the answer to no, that. No, and, and yeah. you know, I
0: I think they would their answer would be that they've kind of grown some, right? Yandi Diaz is is now a star player. He was an All-Star. They'd never had, well, one other time, excuse me, they had two players voted to start in the All-Star game. That was way back in 2010. Longoria, so, right? Longoria and Crawford and then Price was the starting pitcher, so they actually had three on the field to start the game. So this year they had a Rosa Reina and Diaz. So those are two guys even though neither was drafted or signed originally by the Rays but they got them when they really weren't much and they developed them or they developed while they were here into being star players so I think that's what their answer would be is that they have some star players they still are very high on Jose Siri Uh, we've seen obviously their pitching although devastated by injuries you know Shane McClanahan a guy who was a a star
1: we should make that point that three starters that were were
0: right McClanahan would have been in the all-star game as well and yeah they missed three-fifths of here, here put it this way I wrote, as others did, but I'll claim credit for writing this spring that they had, believe it or not, look around the majors, the best rotation in Major League Baseball, one through five, was the Tampa Bay Rays. Do you know how many times those five guys actually got to pitch together this year? Zero. Uh, Glassnow got hurt in spring training. Then we saw the other guys all go down, McClanahan. Uh, well, first was Springs, then Rasmussen, then McClanahan. Eflin was in and out there. So there was never a point where those five guys were all active at the same time. So it shows you how best laid plans go, but also showed you the fr- the fragility of no
1: matter what you have planned. That was supposed to be their strength. They never got one turn through the rotation out of those guys. All right. I'm going to put you on the spot, Mark. Uh, if you had to make one wild prediction about what the Rays will look like in 2024, what's, what's the wild? It may not come true, but it's wild and crazy prediction.
0: Trade a Rosarena, really? As as painful and as illogical as that would seem, I think just the way he struggled in the second half last year, and it's just that the scale we talked about this earlier in this podcast is just the scale that they kind of use, where a guy's salary goes up. You know, they're always trying to look one and two years ahead. In fact, Sternberg says he doesn't even give them necessarily. You know, they have a framework for a one-year budget, but they have like a three-year window, and if they want to borrow ahead. And then they're going to go down the next year, or they want to go down this year and have more to spend because they see who's going to be available. But Rosaran is at the point now where he's going to—he's in his second of four years of arbitration. He's projected to make nine million this year. Uh, he's got a hardline agent and Scott Boris, who typically doesn't do extensions—not not not, not never—but rarely does extensions with a team. A Rosarain a little older, not necessarily a guy you'd want to probably give a five or six year deal to anyway. So. If you want a bold prediction, that would be it, is that you won't see Randy or Rosarena. There, there won't be Randy land. Maybe they'll have to call it Elliott land
1: now. <laughs> or Mark land. You've been there a long time. So uh, let's talk about uh, – let's move away from inside baseball, but I, I can spend another hour doing that, and maybe we'll have you back on to do that. Let's talk about the fact that the Rays can't draw big crowds. It was a bit of an embarrassment during the uh, playoffs, although there wasn't a lot of time to let people know, and, and the the time wasn't released until, like, Sunday afternoon. But mm-hmm. – do you feel in your heart with the new stadium that we'll see a dramatic increase in attendance, or is the geography going to play against the Rays? Talk about something we could talk about for an hour. Um, uh, let's
0: see. Well, first of all, I, you'd probably have
1: to define dramatic to me. I mean... Uh, you know, so maybe they're averaging in the mid-20s. So from 17 to 22?
0: Yeah. I, I think you could see that. And certainly the first couple of years, there's usually a built-in bump. Mm-hmm. I mean, part of their premise and... and I've I came here in nineteen eighty three straight from college, and I've always lived in the St. Pete on the St. Pete side. So, uh, I am probably a little prejudiced and biased in that regard. But the fact that uh, one of the explanations is the fact that there is so many more people now living, especially in the downtown St. Pete area, mm-hmm. and it's true. I mean, you know, I just I remember when I started here, I worked weekends at the Times, and to go out to dinner. We had to get in a car and go to 34th Street to go to a fast food place. Not even anywhere nice. There weren't even fast food places on 4th Street or anywhere to go in downtown that was open on the weekend. So it's just mar- It's amazing, and and you know, just the construction driving by to come over to see you guys today. And right across from our building, there's a fifty fifty five zero story building being built right next to a forty four zero story being built. There's already several luxury condos. So there's a high end. There's a lot of building There's a lot of high end building. So I think there's more people who have money to spend that are in downtown St. Pete, who now they don't have to drive over the bridge if they can get a percentage of those people just to walk to the trop or or the new stadium, whatever it'll be called. You know, that'll help, too. But I I do think that at some point there there has to be an acknowledgement that this is not the bridge is not the biggest impediment. This isn't a space shuttle. I mean, talk to people. You've been around, right? Talk to people in Chicago, in Boston, in New York. Spending an hour to get to a game, and some of them on two or three modes of transportation. There's people who live in the suburbs out in those big cities who take their car to the local train station, park it there, take the local train into the city, get off there, and then take a subway to the stadium, and they couldn't be happier to be there. It's a privilege. And here, I, I've i used this analogy before, and, and I, I don't mean it to offend people, but it seems to me what people want here is they want to think they're going to Tyrone Mall. They want to pull up in their own car. Park in the front for free and walk into the air conditioning. That's what they
1: want. That's not how it is going to sporting no, events. It's not going to. And listen, growing up as a Yankee fan, I spent a lot of time on the GW Bridge trying to get and from in an hour and a half. So, yeah, you know, going across Howard Franklin uh, or any of the bridges is, is not a big deal. Mark, you know, I, I, this is a, a question I, I want to hear your answer because I'm very interested. So, this year we saw a bigger marketing push from the Rays than I think we've seen in in a while. Now, some have suggested the Rays were not motivated to invest in marketing in previous years because they didn't want to be in St. Petersburg, and that impacted attendance. What are, what are your thoughts on that theory?
0: It's interesting, and I'll be very candid. Until I read that questions in in conversing with Alex when we were kind of setting up the pre production of this, I hadn't really heard that theory. But it, it it you know kind of struck me like you know maybe there is something to that. But I think there's a cart and horse question here, a chicken and egg question too. Is did they not want to invest before and then they, as they knew that they were headed toward doing this deal with St. Pete, so they invested to make it look better, or did they invest in thinking, let's put some meat into our marketing effort here, let's have some lower tickets, let's get some billboards, let's get some more signage and see if that pays off, and they did have a 27.7, so 30% basically increase in attendance this year. I think they had the biggest in the majors uh, this year over last year, and, and again, relatively speaking... They were not at a huge number to begin with. But if you have a a 27%, 30% increase in attendance, that does say something. And I think so there was a reward for that. Now, I don't know, like I said, we know which was the genesis of it. But either way, I think it did help them and probably help some of the people in St. Pete and Pinellas County who have to vote on authorizing all this money to be spent
1: feel a little better about the decision. So my final question, Mark, and it's a little tongue in cheek, but you have covered the race for so long. When they build the new press box, are, are they going to ask your input on the press box? I think they should. Well, I'll,
0: I would say two things. That's a good question. <laughs> I hope they let me pick my seat because I'm very particular on which side of the press box. I like to sit on the side so I can see back into the raised dugout. So I like to sit on the third base side. But the bigger thing is, and, and you've been around some stadiums now, no new stadiums put the press box behind on plate anymore. And a number of the existing stadiums have moved the press box. They've decided, why should we give that area away for free? That's a great spot to watch a game from.
1: I didn't know this. So where is the of press box? in yeah. most of these So these like
0: stadiums. in Toronto, for example, is the most extreme example. It's behind the left field foul pole. Talk about being disoriented trying to watch a game from there. There's actually you. There's a blind spot for a ball hitting the left field corner. And the first year they did it, they had the T V feed, so there you couldn't you looked up there was a delay, so you didn't actually know what happened. So they've now put a live feed camera in there so you could at least see it live. But a number of teams have moved it they're down the third baseline, down the first baseline, Anaheim's another one where you're out by the foul pole in right field. So I'd be very happy. I don't need my name. I don't need anything. I would just like the Rays to have
1: the press box somewhere close to behind home plate. That would be great. Well, you better be careful. You're talking about if Randy gets traded, Randy Lynn, You could the press box could end up in Randy Lynn. Mark Tompkins, always a pleasure to talk baseball and just see you again. So thank you for joining us. Anytime. This was fun. And a thank you to our listening audience. Please give us a five-star rating and tell your friends and family about the podcast. Uh, We're taking next week off for the holidays, so a new episode will drop in two weeks. Please join us next time when we turn our attention to a new topic on Florida In-Depth with the Tampa Bay Times. I'm Professor Elliot Weiser. Thank you for listening to Florida In-Depth with the Tampa Bay Times. The podcast is produced by the Department of Journalism and Digital Communication at the University of South Florida, St. Petersburg. Executive producers are Elliot Weiser and Carolyn Fox. Our director is Christopher Campbell. Producers are Michael Van Sickler, Jenna Duncan, Kelsey Foresta, Jordan Kalagian, and Alex Logue. Production assistant is Laura Hughes. And a special thank you to Mark Katches at the Tampa Bay Times, and at USF St. Petersburg, thank you to Dr. Mark Walters and Dr. Casey Frechette. Until next time, I'm Elliot Weiser.